Good evening, and welcome to the May 2020 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Twenty years ago, Showtime premiered an American version of a British original series that told the story of a group of gay friends called Queer as Folk. The new American version was groundbreaking, and in so many ways became a huge success, running for five seasons. Actor Scott Lowell played the character of Ted Schmidt for the length of the series. This month, he hosted a 20th anniversary reunion of cast and crew as a fundraiser for Centerlink, an organization that supports local LGBT centers around the United States. Tonight, we'll visit with Scott to talk about his memories from the show and his work with the reunion to support local LGBT centers all around our country. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, May 24th, 2020. I love to change the This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of May 24th, 2020. Germany is the latest country to ban conversion therapy for minors. The country's parliament passed a bill earlier this month outlawing the practice of attempting to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity for minors and for adults who have been forced, threatened, or deceived to undergo the controversial treatment. Conversion therapy has been widely debunked by major medical associations in the United States, UK, and elsewhere. German Chancellor Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Union joined the Social Democratic Party of Germany and the Free Democrats in voting for the ban. Only one member of the Alternative for Germany voted against the law. The left party and Greens want to strengthen the law, claiming it didn't go far enough to protect young adults. Last year, Outright Action International published a groundbreaking report on conversion therapy titled Harmful Treatment, the Global Reach of So-Called Conversion Therapy. And here in the U.S., two police officers are facing criminal charges in an alleged beating of a black transgender woman in 2019, several months before her death. A video posted online last week shows two white Kansas City, Missouri police officers appearing to hold a black transgender woman down while beating her against the pavement. According to ABC News affiliate KMBC, the officers in the video are Matthew Brummett, 37 years old, and Charles Picard, 47 years old and the woman they were beating in the video was Brianna Hill. The alleged use of excessive force occurred on May 24th of 2019. Six months later, Hill was found shot to death in Kansas City, making her the 21st known transgender person murdered in 2019. Brummett and Pritchard, the officers facing charges in connection with the beating that was caught on video, released a statement saying they didn't do anything illegal. The officers, quote, maintain that the force they used was reasonable under the totality of circumstances, the statement said, and they vehemently dispute the basis of these charges and believe they will be exonerated. Kansas City Police Chief Rick Smith said in a statement that the officers were placed on administrative leave and the investigation is moving forward. The Kansas City Fraternal Order of Police called the prosecution, quote, yet another example of a politically motivated prosecution that is unfortunately becoming all too commonplace across the country, end quote. And PBS announced that it's going all out in the month of June to celebrate LGBTQ Pride Month by launching a six-episode series of short videos on a dedicated YouTube channel created by its digital studios. Each Tuesday beginning May 26th, PBS will release a Pride Land vignette focusing on LGBTQ people and how a person deals with the ever-changing attitudes of the southern states. 
But not everyone is excited about the broadcast. The American Family Association, a hate group committed to combating, quote, the homosexual agenda, end quote, issued a statement on a website calling for supporters to sign a petition urging PBS to cancel Prideland. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. One of my absolute favorite television shows of all times is Queer as Folk. This groundbreaking series first premiered in 2000 based on an earlier British series of the same name. Scott Lowell played one of the central characters in the series, Ted Schmidt. Here's one of Scott's many powerful dialogues from the series. It's early on when Emmett, played by Peter Page, is entering a conservative religious-based conversion therapy program hoping to become straight. Here's Scott as Emmett's friend, Ted. We want to let you know that we still love you. Maybe not as much as Jesus, but almost. And that we're going to miss you. Especially Miss Lee. Dance with your hands over your head and your nice impersonation. That's, that's the way I'll always remember you. Thanks. I don't think God appreciates it quite as much as you do. I think God appreciates it even more. Because he created you in his image. At least that's what I was always taught. And since God is love and God doesn't make mistakes, then you must be exactly the way he wants you to be. The way he intended you to be. And that goes for every person, every planet, every mountain, every grain of sand, every song. Every tear and every faggot. We're all his, Emmett. And he loves us all. You also know Scott Lowell from his work on television series like Bones and Frasier. He's a Broadway star and most recently the producer of a new series called Adoptable. Scott, welcome to Outbeat Radio. So much, but thanks for having me. Well, it's great. It's really an honor for us to have you on the show. And so before we get talking about this amazing fundraiser and reunion that you put together, um, you know, I know a lot. we have a lot of listeners who are definite fans of Queer as Folk. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that. As you look back, what drew you to, to even audition for a part in this really, at the time, crazy idea, I think? Well... You know, I had just moved to Los Angeles about a year and a half before, a little under two years before, and from Chicago, where I had done primarily theater in Chicago, but the winters kind of finally drove me out after 10 and a half of them. So, uh, you know, I'd come to Los Angeles to do film and TV stuff. I had really just started doing them. I had done an episode of Frasier, that long ago, Frasier and Caroline in the City, and I'd done one movie of the week. And I remember getting, I got two scripts 
for auditions <clears throat> that came in from my agents. One was for a movie about firemen. Mm. And the other was the pilot for Queer as Folk, which was the first three hours, the, the three-part right. three pilot. And I read them both, and Queer as Folk terrified me. Just because it was so, like, for the time, I mean, there was nothing like it. Not and I couldn't all. believe any of this was actually going to make it on TV. And the movie about firemen was fine. But I kind of felt like, you know, after I read the script, I so completely understood Ted and understood the character and loved the fact that so many of the characters, whether they were gay, straight or whatever, they were, they were these very universal kind of characters, unique. But there was something especially about Ted that, I just felt it was, you know, this very universal character. And so I kind of felt like, you know, I'm not going to get cast as a fireman. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of threw that script away and I just focused in on, on reading Queer as Folk, going through it and preparing for the audition. And I had this instant kind of psychological connection with the character. My sister is gay and I kind of recognized as well how important this show would be for her absolutely to see as well on television and that was about it and you know at the time when the show was auditioning linda lowey and john brace who did the original casting for the u.s production they had lists of literally two thousand actors who would not come in and audition for this show oh wow uh, entire agencies the agency actually that represented our show's creators Ron Cowan and Dan Littman, their entire ages would not send any of their actors in for the show, despite them representing the creators of the show. Wow. They would not let any of their actors audition for this show. So again, it opened up an opportunity to me, someone who at least in Los Angeles terms was relatively new to the town. I'd been doing it. I'd been acting, you know, for quite a few years, but mostly in theater up until then, but it opened the door for people like me and most of the cast who had little television experience to get this opportunity. And I just kind of dove in and, you know, I ended up being the first one, I think primarily because they didn't know, I think my character was not one fully defined in their mind. I think mm -hmm. they had really clear pictures of what they wanted for a lot of the other roles. But the description for my character was that he was chubby, he was balding, you know, and you know he was the older, older one of the characters. And, uh, and I wasn't necessarily those things, but because the psychology of him was so clear to me and so at the surface, especially having just moved to Los Angeles and what I was experiencing, even as a heterosexual in Los Angeles and the feeling of worthlessness and unattractiveness and all that stuff, when you get into that food chain that's down there, right. I was kind of a raw nerve, I think, coming into those auditions for it. And that just they just responded to that. So I ended up having the easiest go of any of the actors as far as the audition process. I auditioned once for the casting directors. I came back in second time to audition for the producers. And then I tested and they didn't test anybody else against me. Uh -huh. uh, they just kind of felt like this is our, our sad set. <laughs> this, this is Ted. They knew. This is Ted. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll talk about this a little bit later. But but Ted ended up being a very important and central character to the story. I mean, uh, Brian sort of stands out as the the quote unquote pretty boy, and certainly had a lot of storyline around him. But but the really meaty storylines often involve Ted. 
And uh, and I want to talk more about that. But you know, you mentioned the, the first three hours of the pilot, and I use that in my LGBT studies class because you know most of my students in their early twenties, and the show premiered twenty years ago, so this is all new for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I sort of build it up, but I talk about the context of the year two thousand, and and then say I, I just want you to imagine being in two thousand. You know, a couple years after Matthew Shepard was murdered, gay marriage wasn't really much of a discussion. There was still a lot of anti-LGBT rhetoric. And you turn on Showtime, and in the first 20 minutes of the pilot, this is what you see. And then we look at, we look at that, and they are completely blown away. Uh, now, in today's standards, maybe, I, I even think today it would still be pretty pretty unusual. Um but in the reunion, I remember you talking with some of the cast members about the first time that you saw the first 20 minutes of that pilot. Talk about that experience. Yeah, it was. Uh, and those are all absolutely great points you're making. And it's really something. And I'm glad you put them in that mindset of where it was 20 years ago. And, and you were right as well. I just finished watching uh, Normal People on Hulu, uh, Irish series. And it's probably the most graphic sex I've seen since our show, I feel like, Um, heterosexual or homosexual. Mm -hmm. So it was very groundbreaking as far as that goes as well. So for us, yeah, we had started filming in July and the producers of the shows for various reasons, they did not want us to see any footage they really wanted us to remain raw and fresh and unknowing exactly what it was we were doing in some ways. And usually, you know, you're working on something every day, you might get to see some footage and see what you're doing. They kept it from us until I think we were into the seventh episode of the show filming. Oh. So we've been filming for quite a few months. And they finally, once they had edited together the three-part pilot, they said, all right, we're, we're going to let you guys see it. And we went and we had a viewing party uh, at Hal Sparks' apartment, I remember, because he had the biggest TV. And we all gathered. And it was electric. I mean, it was, we couldn't believe that was us in some ways. And I will remember, I remember, you know, the first shot of, of Gail as Brian entering in. And it was just like, you thought to yourself, I don't know if we can swear here, but like, he's going to be an effing rock star. I mean, that's, Amazing. And then they get into that first scene with Brian and Justin in the first sex scene. And my jaw dropped, you know, and for me too, again, I, you know, I, my sister's guy, I have a lot of gay friends, all this stuff. I'd never really talked about sex, Mm -hmm. gay sex with anyone. And I had the unknowing quality of many heterosexuals. I think I truly did not know until I saw that first scene. It's like, Oh, Gay men can have sex in a missionary type position. I always assumed it always had to be from behind. Like I I had Mm -hmm, all mm -hmm. those kind of preconceptions in my brain of what even gay sex was until I saw it in that show. And I I mean, it was great. It was, it it was so hot and romantic and yeah, just electric is the word I I can just give it. It was, and, and not shot, but not shocking, not, you know, it was, it made me have a greater appreciation for the sexual content in the show as well that for the most part continued through all five seasons where I don't feel it was ever really gratuitous. I feel like 
the sex came out of very psychological places. I felt like what was groundbreaking for the show beyond it being a show about gay characters was the fact that it dealt with sex as a psychological aspect of characters. Ordinarily, you know, and even still, you see characters making out in the next scene, it's after sex and they've got the sheets up and, and who people are psychologically and how they connect sexually is such a huge part of an insight an audience can get into characters. And if you don't have that first sexual encounter between Brian and Justin and really understand why this kid becomes obsessed for five years with this guy, or what, what is that connection that he had there with his first time being with this older man? What does that mean to him and, and everything that goes on there? I don't think you get the rest of the show. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And it, and it was tender. It was sensuous. And there were parts of it that were really funny. You know, Very funny. They were yes. really funny. When Brian's on the phone learning about the birth of his child, you know, yes. uh, it, it's really great. And the students, they're just drawn to it uh, immediately. Um, That's and, great to hear. And of course, like most of the viewers, the girls in the class, most of them are straight women, are just, they just want to watch the whole series right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that was the great surprise for all of us. And, you know, uh, in the interviews we did for the reunion event as well, too, uh, Ron and Dan talk about that quite a bit, the surprise we had that half, if not more, of the audience ended up being straight women Yeah, uh, was a great surprise. And part of, you know, a huge part of the show's success, I think Showtime at the time was they were taking the Burger King approach to going after HBO because HBO at the time only had Sopranos and Sex and the City really, but already they were becoming kind of the juggernaut they are and Showtime was way in the cellar. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, Burger King in the same way was going after McDonald's at the time by focusing on niche audiences. They were going after a more urban audience and their commercials and things like that. And they eventually got back to be number two didn't get to be number one, but <laughs> they got to be number two. And Showtime, likewise, they had us. They had a show, uh, a series version of Soul Food, which was an African-American series, and a show called Resurrection Boulevard, which was an all-Latino cast. And so with these three niche audiences they were going after, they hoped to kind of catch up to HBO. We broke out as their by far number one. Right. Because... Straight women came to it as well too. What it didn't end up being a niche show. It ended up being having a much wider audience than they anticipated. Yeah, I've read several comments in articles over the years that queers folks saved Showtime. Very much so. Yeah, very much so. And and over the five years, you know, it was really almost like uh, a, a news program in some ways because the show kept up with all of the contemporary topics that were. That were happening then aids hate crimes marriage equality the structure of the family and the revisioning of, of what a family could be what are the storylines for you that just stand out as being the most personally uh powerful well obviously for for my character for ted the crystal meth storyline and the that scourge that was, you know, and continues to be in the gay community. And especially at the time we were doing this, which was starting in 2003, I think we started that storyline. It was something that was just really beginning to be a problem in the gay community. And one that once we decided we were going to approach it, we all wanted to make sure we made it right. And, uh, and, and, and made it frightening. 
you know, did what we could to, to make it a cautionary tale so that people would not be tempted to try this thing. And what was unusual again about it and, you know, your normal TV writing at that time, you would have made the character who does drugs all the time be the one who has this problem. You would have gone after Brian. The fact that they went, they chose Ted to go through that being the more average guy. And again, that's more who it's going to hit somebody who has self-esteem problems, things like that, right. you know, who's needing that kind of escape. It makes more sense. And I, I still, it's one of the ones that still, you know, people again, 20 years later, that's the one I get, I get thanked the most for doing that storyline. And I hear so much. I was heading down that path. My, my partner was heading down that path. My best friend was heading down that path and seeing that stop that. That, that makes me the proudest. But I, yeah, I agree that, you know, the, the gay marriage, the marriage equality issues, I thought the bug chasing issue, I thought was really yes. unique and powerful to go through that. Yeah, it's, you're right. I mean, it's, it's hard. And, and, you know, I talked to Ron and Dan about this for the event as well, too, the kind of the prescient nature they had, because a lot of these issues, again, were on the precipice of becoming big issues when the show came about, but that was part of its kind of rock and roll rebellious spirit, I think, was that it was able to attack those issues without worrying who you were going to offend. And, and again, that's something they struggled with as the creators of the show as well. Even within the gay community, there was a lot of um, anger towards the show as far as what we were showing that a lot of members of the gay community didn't want us showing, especially to the straight community. Yeah. No, I, I remember reading those kinds of comments as well. And I, I think one of the things that strikes me about Ted, too, as a character is that he was he was an accountant. He was a little bit older. He was the more conservative one of the bunch. And yet Ted found himself immersed in things like running a porn company yeah. uh, and, you know, and then again getting involved uh, with drugs. I think, and you alluded to this already, Ted taught us a lot. Uh, as a character over the course of the series, what are some of the lessons for gay men that you think Ted taught? I think, you know, that big one, and thank you for saying that. And I, you know, again, the, that kind of universal quality to him. And in a lot of ways, I think there are a lot more Ted's than there are Brian's out there Absolutely. in the world. And I think you know, the lesson he learns at the end, you know, that takes him five years to the end of the show to realize about self-love and loving yourself and not getting caught up in all these other preconceptions and this notion of I need this other, I need another person to complete me. That's the biggest lesson. Everything he went through came out of self-esteem issues and self-loathing. And he finally conquered that, I think, in the end or conquered or at least got to a great place with it. I think that's the greatest lesson for him as well, you know, as well as his ability to be, I mean, again, all the characters in the show were such great, I call them gray characters. They weren't black or white and Ted could be, you know, the best friend and he could be an absolute the next second, you know, like he could mm -hmm. be terrible to his friends as well. Um, but in the end, yeah, that self-love and also, Ask for help when you need it. You know, yeah, yeah boy, boy, isn't that the truth. To kind of get to that point where he finally was able to ask for help and admit 
his own weaknesses. Yeah. I think I recall uh, you asking some of the characters in the reunion about, or maybe it was some of the guests who were asking the characters where they thought if, if Queer's Folk was still running today, where their character would be in 2020, where do you think Ted would be? I think he, I would like to think he still in some ways was working in, in advertising and, you know, still participating in Brian's business, whether Brian was still involved with it or not. But I, I think, you know, again, the strength he found in himself working in that kind of environment and putting out, helping to put out messages of positivity and working for, for better causes. You know, I think, I, I think he would have stayed with Blake. I think, you know, they had such a deep understanding of what they each had gone through, through the course of their addiction, that bond, I think, would have gotten them through a lot of stuff. And I hope he would still be singing with his local gay choir and maybe even, you know, doing some supernumerary roles in some operas or something like that. <laughs> I, I would hope he would still pursue that. I, I think he, I would hope he would be in a much more peaceful place while also being terrified of what's going on in the country today, of course. Well, still, yeah. And feeling, well, you know, uh, and recognizing, as we all have, that you have to remain diligent with this stuff. You can't get complacent. Right, right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth here on KRCBFM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. And with us tonight is actor Scott Lowell, who played the character Ted Schmidt in the groundbreaking series Queer as Folk. You know, certainly there have been a lot of TV series that have had cultures and followings develop. I mean, when I think about what Queer as Folk is similar to, I guess, Friends comes to mind as a collection of people and personalities and storylines that have had a following. Uh, and, and Queers Folk definitely has. The cast has come together, you know, several times for reunions. I don't ever recall a series where there have been as many reunions with as much participation from the cast. And it's really been quite wonderful. What you produced this last month for the 20th year reunion was absolutely remarkable. Thank you. Uh, the interviews, the insight, the depth, and, and meeting new people that had not otherwise been visible in, in previous reunions gave such insight. And uh, I think that it's really going to become a, a piece of teaching material for, for film students, for television students, and certainly for LGBT studies students, you know, and part of that archive. Talk about where your idea to do this came from, and, and then of course, we'll get talking about Centerlink as the beneficiary. Absolutely. No, th thank you for saying all that. I, I really appreciate that. And it's something, you know, it, it first just came out of an impulse of sitting around with nothing to do. And especially as being an actor, almost everything I do requires me being around other people in one way or another. So during this lockdown, and I'm, I'm in New York as well. And so we kind of started fairly early and fairly intensely here with that. You know, I knew it was going to be a good chunk of time before I be able to really practice what I like to do uh, with my life. And so I was looking for something to do. And I saw a few other casts getting together, do things. And as you mentioned, we've done some throughout the year. And it is, it's very rare for what is essentially a relationship-based drama television show to, to have a fan base that wants to come to conventions and things like that, especially 20 years down the road. We were very rare uh, in terms of that. 
And we're all, you know, the cast, we're all very close still. We're, you know, you, you can't go through a crucible like Queer as Folk working on that, filming that, especially out of your own country. And we shot up in Toronto. That's right. So the bond we have from that show, it's it's very much family. It's not even friends. We're, we're all family. And so we've been in touch and I saw some of these reunion things and I started thinking we could do something like that. I'm fairly good with technology. <laughs> so I could probably figure out how to do this somehow or other. And I got in touch with the gang and said, you know, what do you think? Would you guys be up for doing something like this for, for charity if we're raise, doing to raise money this time rather than lining our own pockets? <laughs> what about if we give back and do something? And everyone was kind of into it. And then I went looking and our first initial discussions were, you know, Peter had been on the board of the Los Angeles LGBT center. And I knew I wanted to do something there because I know this time of year, mostly because of my own experience from having been asked in the past, especially when I lived in Los Angeles, you know, springtime is the time of year, early summer, when we're all getting asked to go to these fundraisers, these big spring gala fundraisers that a lot of these centers have in order to make up their budget for the year. And obviously that's not going to happen. My sister, who I mentioned earlier, she's a, a one of the biggest lighting designers up in the Boston area for events, weddings, and, and large, large corporate events as well. And I knew from her that everything had been canceled until into August. So right. I knew I wanted to do something to help LGBT centers. I looked around, I had heard of Centerlink, I looked more into them and I thought, you know, this makes more sense rather than targeting one or two centers somewhere to work with an organization that works with all of them and leave it to them to figure out all right, what are the ones that specifically have needs that we can give some money to. I got back in touch with the gang. They said, absolutely, that sounds amazing. I kind of cold emailed Denise Spivak, uh, the interim CEO down at Centerlink out of the blue. And and she even laughed at me because I wrote like, hi, I'm Scott Lowell. I was on this show called Queer as Folk. Because I know, I mean, you know, you never know. And she wrote back and said, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> don't need to tell me who you are, what you were on. That's amazing. Uh, and coincidentally, you know, I proposed uh, May 1st as May Day because originally I was going to call it May Day, Gay Day. I thought like that has a nice advertising rhythm to it. And uh, she said, this is amazing. Yeah, actually, we Glad was just in touch with us. They want to do a fundraiser for us on the 26th of April. So I said, perfect. We'll make it a week-long celebration and really draw some attention to right. you and what you do. And that was it. I mean, so it just came out of this notion of wanting to do something, wanting to do some good, knowing I wanted it to be around centers and then finding Centerlink kind of made it. And as it went along, as I worked on, and it took a, a month, to, a good month to really put it all together. And I knew, I, sorry, this is going to, I'm going to diverge a little bit here and I apologize. Yeah, no, 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 go ahead. Lengthier answer. I had a few years ago, back in 2018, a friend of mine who had actually been, uh, had a nice recurring guest role on Queer as Folk years ago, an actress named Kate Zena. She played in the fifth season of the show, a character uh, Melanie kind of has a little bit of a mm. flirtation with working at some, some political campaign or something. I can't even remember the storyline. But Kate had remained a good friend of mine. She's married and lives in Palm Springs. And her husband is in the business world. And they discovered this new business conferencing thing called Zoom back in 2017 or 2018. And they thought, God, there's something you could do with this. 
around fan events. And so they got in touch with me because I had helped organize some fan conventions in the past and kind of brought me into their, into their company to help them figure out what can we do with this technology. And I saw its potential right away, which is now I should have invested money back then. Now, you know, of course, during this pandemic has become what, what it's being used for. And so to test it out and to test this theory out, I created this thing called binge club because we have these fans of the show who binge watch it over and over again. And I'll get these tweets from people all the time saying, I just finished season five. I'm going to give myself a week off and I'm starting season one all over again. And they go through the thing over and over again. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have essentially a book club for people who watch the show over and over again to really sit down with people and discuss them and almost have a director commentary track for each episode of the show and really do a deep dive. And so I created this thing called binge club and we ended up only doing two episodes. We did the first, we did the pilot, the first three episodes It exists somewhere online. I should be able to find it for you and your class maybe. And I was able to get kind of what I did for this event. I got Tom Best, who was the director of photography. I got Sean Jensen, the camera operator. I got some of the guest actors on the show. And we just went through the episode. It ended up going four hours, almost as long, almost as long as the uh, the May Day event. And the fans were really into it. And we did. Then we did the fourth episode, uh, maybe a few weeks later, or same kind of thing. I got some of the guest actors. I got some of the crew who worked on it, who had significant uh, input to to talk about behind the scenes what went on in creating that episode. It ended up unfortunately not being economically viable because it costs a lot of money to produce it and the right. time it took to create it. And, you know, you, you discover quickly what willing people are willing to pay for on the internet and it's generally nothing. <laughs> they want everything for free. So the size of the audience we were able to get who are willing to buy a ticket to, to come to these special events uh, was not high enough to keep it going. So we didn't do it, but it planted that seed of this is doable. Sure. And when this, Given that this was the 20th anniversary, I wanted to do just something similar. And I wanted to keep introducing audience and fans of the shows to the people who they see their names go by in the credits all the time and they don't know who they are. Right. And in this time when we're learning how much we all need each other, I wanted to make it clear that it wasn't just the seven or eight faces, the nine faces you see every week on the show there it's a lot of people it took to make that show and they're our family and we're still you know i go to toronto whenever i can i see all the crew i, I love them all they we truly all became a family working on this show and that's part of why i think it still resonates as well and so i felt if i'm going to do this event that's what i want it to be and if i'm going to be in charge that's what i'm going to make it be and it ended up you know just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and i started wondering what the hell have i done but uh in the end, Greg, and it's, you know, it's part of the reason I responded to your message as well, too, because you got exactly what I wanted this to be and why I want to leave this up on YouTube or whatever, because I think there is an academic aspect to the whole thing where this was a rare opportunity. Because, again, like who knows how long all these people are going to be around? You exactly. Never know what's gonna happen to people. And to get their thoughts down, to let them to, to let the creators of the show talk with some of their favorite writers so people can know this is what went on. This is what inspired that storyline. This is how they created the show. Uh, and, you know, the aspect of the show that I got into with the hair and makeup department, because the, the beautiful they, thing they did with that community of background 
actors on the show who were the, you know, the dancers and, you know, had as tough a job as we did a lot of the times. Um, and the community they formed, that behind the scenes story, which is so heartbreaking to me in so many ways and kind of got me during the broadcast, unfortunately. Um, you know, I wanted that out there as well, too. I wanted people to know this is what this show was all about. Yeah, no. And it, and it what's so interesting is that the reflection of the show 20 years later is different than it was five years, you know, uh, after the show ended or 10 years after the show ended. And to be able to hear from the actors um, as they look back and they see the change and the impact that the show has had in their circles was really, really interesting, uh, as well as just the, all the talk about the different reasonings why and the thought process and the writer's room and all of that. Those are all behind the scenes things that, you know, when you look at the whole five series DVD set, you don't get. And no, that's and, true. And so, you know, 10 years, 15 years from now, when people pick up the the uh, the series and look at it for the first time, they're going to have all these wonders. I wonder what was going through their head. I wonder what it was like. And now you have something that people can go back and watch and listen to. Uh, I remember watching the the reunion um, episode that was done at the Abbey down in, in L.A. And people were having such a good time with each other revisiting the show. But this just went so much deeper. How long was the final uh, length of the May Day event? It was four and a half hours. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I, I will admit I did not last that long. No, uh, that's okay. It, it, I had tried to make it about three, three and a half. And in the end, and I had to call a few audibles during the broadcast as well, too. I wasn't able to play interviews with uh, Kelly Macon, director, and Jeremy Podesta, one of our directors. So I put those up on YouTube as, as separate things because it got to be about the fourth hour. And it was just because as much as I tried to prep everyone, come on, one good memory and, and, and we move on. It was just hard, you know, to stop people from wanting to talk and then bringing fans on as well to ask questions. It just kept pushing us longer and longer. And in the end, I felt like it for the, you know, I can put those interviews up later. I, you know, in the, you know, you're thinking very quickly on your feet. Right. It's like, I can put those up later. People can still see those, this interaction that's happening between people. That's, I can't interrupt that. That's, that's a, a unique and beautiful thing. And I think it's a really a really smart way of looking at it too, that difference between the closer perspective we had just after filming it as opposed to now, because there's, and, and again, part of my passion behind wanting to talk to these people and, and you'll notice, especially in interviews with the directors and with the writers and creators to talk about what was really groundbreaking about the show, because I feel like, and I, and I try not to say it with sour grapes, but I don't think Queer's Folk is included enough in the discussion of television history. You know, at the time, after it first came out, I think it was, we got a lot of attention when we first came out. That first, while we were filming the first season, I mean, Newsweek, Time Magazine, like everyone was up there. They wanted to know about this show. And it came out, and I think it quickly got relegated to being termed a soap opera. I think people found it to be a guilty pleasure. Even the head of Showtime later on, the Bob Greenblatt kind of said it's, he, he, he viewed it as Showtime's Beverly Hills 90210. And it never really was embraced in the, in the media social zeitgeist like Six Feet Under mm -hmm. uh, or The L Word. And I think, and these are, those are kind of contemporary shows of it at the time. 
And again, wonderful programs, but I think they there was a safer quality to those shows sure. for the straight community than there was to Queer as Folk. And I think because Queer as Folk, again, because it did piss off a lot of people in the gay community and uh, because it didn't have that larger cultural zeitgeist moment of feeling safe enough to heterosexual males as well to be able to watch the show, it kind of got dismissed. And even Showtime, I think, even though they air it every June, we kind of feel like we're there. It's a wonderful life for Pride Month. You know? <laughs> every June, they air the whole series. But I, I noticed how quickly they took us off their promo reels for shows they represented. I noticed how much when articles are written about Showtime, Queers Folk does not get mentioned. And so I had a concern that we were going to slip away unnoticed into history. And I think there's something of great historical import about Queers Folk, what we brought to the television landscape, what we did not only for the, the gay community. And again, there was limitations and I get, you know, the lack of representation and diversity on the show, which causes some problems for people still today, which I admit to being a shortcoming of it, but it also was... It was just trying to be, it was already tackling so many issues and things. It, it didn't do that. Again, I'm an actor on the show. It's not, I don't have a say in that, but I recognize that that's a shortcoming. But I, I was worried about it missing its place in the history of television, for what it did for television, pushing things forward, what it did for representation of gay characters on television, Absolutely. which again, I see occasionally sliding back to what it was before we came out. Like we really felt like, I mean, we used to say, that, you know, Ellen kind of started inching the door open with what she did. Will and Grace pushed it over and a little further and then Queers Folk came along and kicked the closet door off the hinges. And we had hoped that gay characters would never again be, as Dan and Ron used to call them, clowns and eunuchs. You know, just the goofy sidekick or someone you could never imagine actually having sex. Right. And unfortunately, I think that's still the predominant portrayal of gay characters on television. So we didn't quite accomplish what we had hoped to for that. But I think partially that's because we were, we've been pushed aside a little bit. Yeah. I mean, when I think back into history and the, in the, the examples of, of shows that helped shape that history and helped, as you say, you know, push that closet door open. I mean, I can think back to the original pilots of tales of the city, you know, Armistead Maupin's, uh, series sure. and and how that one scene with two men in bed and they had a kiss you know pushed corporate America away and and they right. lost all their funding for that um, and Dan and Ron went through that with an early frost which you know they right. they did you know about fifteen years before Queer as Folk and they they weren't even allowed to call each other like their partner or things like the, the network at the time had such strict rules of what they could say or show. You know, the, the grandmother had to say, I like your friend. They couldn't say, I like your boyfriend or anything like that. To go from that to 15 years later to creating Queer as Folk, what a journey. Oh, no, it, it's huge. And, and I think in modern time, well, first of all, I'll just say, I don't think the L word would have happened without Queer as Folk. You know, it, it, the Queer as Folk was the foundation that allowed the L word to happen. But when I think about series that really will become um, a record of our history, Queer as Folk, and then Dustin Lance Black's When We Rise. Yes. You know, two great yeah. examples of stories 
that tell a history that provide a way for for people to learn but also be entertained it's really remarkable absolutely um, tell me a little bit more about centerlink so uh, we have all these local LGBT centers, but Centerlink provides sort of an oversight and support for these. D- tell me more. Yes, that's exactly right. So through through being kind of a hub for all these centers, about a little over 240 centers, and it's all across the U.S., Canada, and some, some places abroad, they provide, yeah, a center, uh, not quite management, but at least like a brain trust of people who can help guide all these centers, and they end up being a place where funding can come into, and then through grants and whatnot, they can go and support local centers and help give them guidance and support to to keep going. So rather than having this completely fractured uh, network of centers, there's a place that they can kind of come together and come up with ways to help each other as well, too. Yeah. So important. So important. So do we have a ground total on how much the fundraiser raised for Centerlink? At this point, it's still growing uh, We because we just finished the first round of auction items. We have another round coming up. Oh. Uh, at this point in time, we're, I think we're a little over 30 grand, wow. a little over $30,000 we raised. And again, this is, you know, I was just reading a friend of mine who's on Park and Recreation. I think they just raised $4 million or something for food banks and things like that. Uh, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that we were able to get this. This is from fans who are don't have a lot of money to give. They're giving $5, $10, and then they're bidding on these wonderful auction items. So I, I am hoping we get up to around $40,000 uh, when things are all said and done with this. But donations keep coming in, which is great. And, you know, it's going to help a lot of a lot of centers keep keep going through this pandemic, which is especially now with the the uh, I'm sure the mental health issues alone that people are going oh, through now, needing a center as a safe space and uh, to go to. Yeah, even under the best of conditions, having a place in a local community to connect with people and get information and resources is essential. I mean, we're up in Sonoma County. We are very lucky to have uh, an AIDS organization, a youth organization, and there's a desire to have you know, sort of a connection for all of those. So Centerlink is, I can imagine, for for small towns and, and big cities. You know, even the L.A. Pride Center, everybody's hurting right now. So this is just critical work. Absolutely. And when, you know, when I really thought about it and kind of with the, the cast picked them as our beneficiary of this event, it made so much sense to what Queer as Folk was about, especially when we first launched as well, too. I mean, the majority of fan letters you would get at the time was I'm, you know, I'm a gay man in Nebraska. I don't know another gay person. I've mm. never met another gay person. I feel I have a family now because I watch your show. And that's what centers, that's what LGBTQ plus centers do. You know, they give people a place, especially in small communities where they don't have that, you know, their family doesn't understand them. They don't have a friend who understands and it gives them a place to go and, and feel like they have a family. Yeah, so it's super natural. important. So talk about where our listeners can go to learn more about uh, the fundraiser, contribute, and maybe check out some of the silent auction items. Well, they can go to Centerlink's site, which is lgbtqcenters.org, I believe. And that's uh, that will have links to, to most everything there, to the auctions. And uh, they can check out on my YouTube channel, Scott Lowell, uh, all the videos I have, we still have the full four and a half hours Excellent. of May Day up there as well. And all the links for things are there as well for the auction site, as well as all the extra 
uh, interviews and things that either didn't make it into the show or you can watch separately with the directors. I've also put up a compilation I made of a lot of wonderful promo videos from some of the centers that Centrelink works with. You can take a look at those because it really, again, it's it's great to get that perspective of across the country and what types of communities. And some of these centers, you know, the LA one is this huge, massive building. And there are some places in North or South Carolina, which are literally someone's living room, it looks like, or the back of a store. Right. And that's all they have for that community, but so vital, as you said. Great. Well, and if you missed those links, we will put them up on our own website at OutbeatNews.com. You can just click on show notes at the top of the page and go in and check out some of those silent auction items. You will not be able to get one of the Queerest Folk bags because I won that. Congratulations. (laughs) Thanks for supporting. Uh, So talk about uh, your career. You've kept busy since Queerest Folk ended and are working or have a new series called Adoptable. Tell us all about it. Yes, no, I've been been very fortunate that people keep paying me to make faces and on front of cameras and things and on stages. So I've been very, very fortunate. And I started writing, boy, it's been a long journey now, but I started writing initially a kind of spoken word for like a moth story hour program down in Los Angeles, a piece about the search process I went through and trying to find my birth parents back in the late 90s. Mm. And the piece went very well. I got invited to a lot of other spoken word festivals with it. And I felt like, oh, there's something here that I want to do something more with. And as time went on, I thought about, you know, writing a play, writing a film. And I want to say in about 2013, 2014 or so, I started seeing, you know, how web series were starting to become a little bit more of a thing. The New York Times was even reviewing some of them. And I felt like, you know, this was a good way for me to create something that I can maybe financially have a little more control over and really make my own and started going down that path and raised the money on Indiegogo, had a lot of wonderful contributors to it. And we finally shot it in 2015 into 2016. And it's taken a few years to get it all together and get it out there. But it's a highly fictionalized version of the search I went through for my birth parents, very loosely based on that. It's about a an actor who plays the uh, the first gay cop on a network television show, a show called Cops and Bottoms. That he <laughs> I love it. Co-stars, he co-stars along with uh, Noah Wiley, uh, who plays a very uh, dickish version of himself. <laughs> and, uh, and his fiance and he have been going through couples therapy and they kind of decide that maybe to help push him towards finally committing towards getting engaged to her, getting married, that he maybe needs to look at the roots of his life and go and find his birth parents, especially for medical history, for them having kids. And so he goes down this road and he decides decides to hire a documentary crew to follow him on this process for various reasons. And it's so it's a fake documentary about the search process he goes through. And Again, that kind of search for self, much, you know, much similar journey to what Ted went through in Careers Focus, like trying to figure out who am I, which is that kind of universal question that adoptees go through, of course, but we all can relate to trying to figure out who am I. And what's been nice so far for audiences of the show, I, I felt it was a very adult show and maybe it's for someone more in their 30s and 40s and above to understand, but I've loved how, how much teenagers and, and people in their 20s as well get it because, again, that thing of always trying to figure out who we are and looking for answers wherever and however we can 
is a pretty universal thing. Sure. Uh, the humor of it is I was very inspired by Ricky Gervais's early work with The Office and extras in Britain. I love that really awkward, uncomfortable kind of comedy where moments just sit there. And it's kind of why I chose that fake documentary uh, aspect to the show as well, because I just love those moments when the camera just lingers on something, when something awful has just happened and it just doesn't <laughs> leave and you're just stuck with it. To me, that's very funny. And throughout my search process, I had a number of moments that at the time I didn't enjoy, but looking back on to me were very, very funny of things, uh, incidents that went on and things I learned as I went along sure. that I thought, you know, this is the, this is the way to do it. So I'm very pleased. And so we shot six 15 minute episodes for the first season and we've just started streaming on a new platform called uh, starbabynetwork.com. And so you can get that around the world now and see it. And, you know, we're hoping to find uh, either a larger home for it or a place who can give us a little money to make the second season. I have two more seasons in my head of where I want it to go. And we had so much fun shooting it, which will be evident if you watch the show. And eventually I'll be putting up some of the behind the scenes and bloopers and things like that. We all had so much fun that we all want to make more. And I was very fortunate and wrote a role for Sharon Gless in it as well. Oh, how uh, great. And, uh, and then threw Gail Harold in there as well. A little cameo is playing her son in the show. And that was, was wonderful too, is getting to put all friends of mine who I have always loved working with and wanted to work with again and writing roles for them in the show. It's it's nice to have that power. So it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm very, very proud of it. And it's very moving as well, I think, uh, which that kind of bittersweet melancholy humor is kind of that's my wheelhouse. Great. Well, that'll be uh, another show to check out while we're all quarantined here. Uh, yes, exactly. It's called Adoptable, and it's on starbabynetwork.com. Excellent. Well, we've been talking with Scott Lowell, who played Ted on Queer as Folk and is doing some wonderful things like raising money for Centerlink. Uh, Scott, congratulations on a, an amazing fundraiser, a, a wonderful historical archive you've created for us. And thanks for being with us tonight. My pleasure, Greg. Thank you. And congratulations to you on winning that beautiful Queer Smoke 2 Roots bag. I will be carrying it with honor. Wonderful. Here's one last conversation between Peter Page, who played Emmett, and Scott Lowell, who played Ted. This was taped back in 2010. What's your, um, what's your favorite moment in the history of Queer Smoke? My favorite moment in the whole history of Queer Smoke. Okay, first, what's your favorite Ted moment in, the favorite, in your <clears throat> whole history of Queer Smoke? My favorite Ted moment on screen, like end result? Yeah would be him uh, him checking into rehab. That was a really good moment. I cried the first time I saw that. How that was shot. Yeah. Kelly Kelly Makins. It also had a little bit to do with your acting. No, nah, that was a puppet. <laughs> it's not a puppet. How about you? What was your favorite moment? My favorite Emmett moment? Yeah. I don't know a when lot. When you saw it in the end. I know. There are a lot that I like. Um, but when you I, like I'm very it. talented. Um, well, give me your top ten. <laughs> I, I love the, I like the scene where, um, where George Schickel dies. In the bathroom. That was great. Airplane. Because I now, think you'll never see that anywhere else, that scene. Now, when you were having sex with him or when he, when you realized no, he well, was I like, dead? I like, it, I like it that it starts off kind of naughty and mischievous and romantic and dirty, and then it turns kind of weirdly funny, and then it turns sort of heartbreaking and awful and scary. It was a great scene. Thanks. I liked it. And, um, and I really, um, as, as an arc, my favorite thing was, was our relationship, was the, um, all the drug stuff. Yeah. As an arc. That was the most sort of satisfying stuff I think we got to do. That was hard to do. That was awful. What's, what's been your favorite thing uh, outside of what actually got on the air? Like, what's been your favorite part of this experience that isn't about the, the end product itself? 
I think the surprise of the first season of not really being so ignorant of what, of what the show's impact could possibly be okay. and, and the journey we went through on the first season, that was the most amazing experience. Because I, I didn't know. I thought, oh, here, here's a nice job to get and, and an exciting script and all that, but I didn't know that we'd be going on such an incredible journey that we did the first year and the response that we would have, you know. And, uh, yeah, all, all that, I think, is probably the best thing. And just the bonding we all did the first year, yeah. you know, being up here alone. It was uh, an amazing experience, and I don't think any of us will get that again. Yeah, I think you're probably right. So outside the show, I would say, outside the scripted yeah. material, that was the, the best thing for me. Yeah. I think mine probably has been, I mean, I loved that, and I obviously I feel very close and connected to all of you, but I think mine has been the the sort of socio-political element of the show and seeing, you know, being stopped on the street by 16-year-old boys who say, you know, I came out to my family because of you and because of the show. That's been so deeply, deeply satisfying to me. That's the thing I know I'll be proud of on my deathbed, you know? Absolutely. I mean, to be thanked for doing something that you get paid billions of dollars to do. <laughs> you, get, you get paid billions of dollars? I don't, you get paid? Y yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm doing that? this as an internship. I'm doing this for college credit. I didn't know that. Wow, you how, how do you how are you doing? Are you going to pass? Uh, well, I don't know. Dan Dan gave me a C, but I think Ron's giving me an F. I don't know because I changed the line. Ron gives Ron gives a lot of Fs. <laughs> um, I don't know what that. Means. <laughs> <laughs> that was quintessential Scott Lowell right there. It's a joke. It's funny. We don't really know why it's funny. No. If you've never seen Queer as Folk and are looking for something to binge watch while you're sheltering in place, it's a perfect choice for Pride Month in June. You can stream all five seasons from any one of a number of online providers. We're going to end tonight with a song you hear regularly here on Outbeat Radio but may not know where it came from. It was from the very first season, the very first pilot show, in fact, of Queer as Folk. And of course, it's Heather Small with Proud. I look into the window of my mind Reflections of the fears I know I've left behind I step out of the ordinary I can feel my soul ascending I'm on my way, can't stop Tune in next Sunday night for an Outbeat Extra with Gary Carnavelli. We'll be talking with local leaders about how the coronavirus is impacting LGBT seniors. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week. and Thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. We are Radio 91, KRCB-FM Windsor, and K215CQ Santa Rosa, a service of Northern California Public Media. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next.